But yeah, for those of you who maybe watched the coronation, um, if you could peel back the layers, if you could peel back the layers of extravagance, the layers of opulence, the layers of aristocracy, the layers of pomp and grandeur, if you could peel back away from the ancient oaths and the languages and the and the sixth century hymns uh, and, and, the, and the incredible traditions that were attached, if, if you could pair all that back, what you would, you couldn't help but notice that the coronation of a king or a monarch has deep Jewish and Christian roots. In fact, one of the, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury was interviewed regarding the oil they used to coronate. I mean, we sang about oil somewhere, the anointed king, one of the songs we sang. Um, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he, as I, was, I said to, who was with me last night, someone, probably Sam here, um, I said, yeah, I could probably drop my sermon this morning and, and we could just watch the 10 minute message that he gave because it was exceptional. And I said, yes, that's a good idea. Yeah. Said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I've worked too hard on this and they're going to have to suffer. We'll just press play and on go. But what, what he said, he was saying, since the beginning, from the beginning of the coronation, my desire has been for a new coronation oil to be produced using olive from the Mount of Olives. Because this demonstrates the deep historic link between the coronation, the Bible, and the Holy Land. From ancient kings through to present day, monarchs have been anointed with oil from this sacred place. So there's something significant, there's a very deep connection about the, what, what, what occurred in, uh, in, in concept last night um, to, a, to the biblical foundation. And so, now I'm not too sure how meaningful any of that was to the people who were there. Um, I actually had a friend. You care, but I had a friend. I've still got friends actually. I've still got friends. But I had a friend who was who actually was there in the ceremony, so that was pretty cool. Um, but I'm not, and he's a Christian, so he's the head of the Assemblies of God in, in the UK. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is, I'm not too sure, no matter how biblical or how many verses were read, or how good the sermon was, or and I'm not too sure how much of that was embraced by the people that were present. Perhaps it's a little bit like uh, our Australian Parliament opening in, in, in the Lord's Prayer. I'm not too, everyone may say it, they may go through the motions, they might, they might just do their thing with little regard to perhaps what this is all about. And so, um, perhaps though, and this I was talking to someone during the week, uh, perhaps for an event that was televised, streamed around the globe, my prayer has been that maybe somewhere in this, those that, that saw a glimpse or watched some of it over there, that somehow the Holy Spirit would, would speak and reveal and show that there is, a, there is a, a God that sits above the institution of man and that there is a God who has uh, given mankind responsibility to care and love for community. And show compassion. So that's been my prayer as, as people who are maybe ambivalent to, to the Christian traditions and roots, that they would stop and pause and, dis and discover a king that is much greater than the king that was crowned yesterday. For most of us, 
our understanding of kingship comes through, for me, my earliest, I remember studying history in school, in primary school, and, and took learning about kings. I remember particularly in year nine history class, doing a little Roman fort, and the king, and the peasants, and the farms, and all that type of stuff. We, we grow up with an understanding of kingship through maybe the way we grew up, through history, uh, maybe from the, the movies we watched, uh, depending from your generation, it was the king and I. Anyone here, the King and I generation? Yeah, your numbers are diminishing. Um, or, or to the Lord of the Rings, maybe. Uh, anyone from the Lord of the Rings generation? Or the Narnia generation? That's, that's the same as the other one. So, um, so our understanding of kingship is typically formed by, by popular culture and the, the movies we see or the Robin Hood uh, shows that we watched and the Sheriff of Nottingham and we, we our, our, our image, when we think of king, we automatically associate that with, with what we've been brought up to think about or process with kingship. Um, and if you grew up in the church, uh, many of the songs we sing even today are songs about the king, about a king of kings and lord of lords. Glory. There we go. Uh, that's, why, that's why I don't leave worship at church. Um, uh, but we sing, all hail King Jesus. We, we sing and we, we sing about a king. But what type of king are we thinking about? When we sing King Jesus, are we, are we, are we thinking, is it, is it like the pomp and the ceremony? Is that the type of king we're imagining? Dressed up and, 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 and got all wealth and extravagance. Is that the type of king we imagine when we process kingship and, and the lordship of Jesus? What does it mean to us that Jesus is king? Is, is, is kingship what we saw last night? Is it something different? And what is our response to that? And what does it mean to swear allegiance to the king? touching a few of those things this morning. And so my prayer is this morning that we would hopefully get a better idea of what true kingship is and more importantly, what our, how we respond to true kingship. And so, um, look, the idea of kingship can be traced well before the kings and queens of Britain. Certainly, back in my history days in primary school, we, we learn of the, the pharaohs and the, the ancient kings of old. We're familiar with their stories. Now, the Bible is probably the greatest, one of the most, um, well, probably the most definitive definition of history in the Middle East regarding kings and kingdoms. Uh, and so if you trace the story of Israel, uh, we can see the interactions between God's people, the nation of Israel, and the world they live in. God, the, the creator, God, the, the, the head of the nation of Israel, uh, and how they interacted with the nations around them. Uh, if you know the stories, when Israel entered the Promised Land, they were surrounded by nations with, under Joshua's leadership that entered to conquer all the nations. They were, they were surrounded by kings and nations that were vying for power and control and wealth. That was the nations that were surrounding them. Uh, the story from Exodus, that's leaving Egypt to, uh, to the Promised Land, we, see, we come across the book of Judges. Uh, and it's based around a three to four hundred year period. Uh, between Joshua and the institution of the monarchy in Israel. Uh, the judges in the Old Testament weren't like our judges today. Uh, they were military leaders and they were chosen by God 
to aid Israel to be victorious against the attack uh, of the uh, surrounding nations. There's an interesting story in the book of Judges. There's a cycle. It's called, uh, if you've done Bible college, it's the apostasy cycle. It's, it's where the nation of Israel turned their back on God and God's already told them this is how you should live. And if they turn their back on God, uh, they, they are under the consequences of their actions. And, and they turn their back on God and then God raises up other nations to sort of push them back toward him and they get oppressed or they get captured or their crops get ruined or whatever. And then they cry out to God and God is who is always merciful and compassionate. He, uh, he raises up a judge or a deliverer to come up and to uh, raise the nation to fight against the opposition. They get victory and they thank you God and then they do it again and again and again and again. Twelve judges and they did this every single time. They, they, they uh, yeah, I've just told you the story. Um, <laughs> But you know some of these judges, you may know the stories of Deborah, or Samson, or Gideon. Uh, they're, they're some of the more famous judges that, that the stories are told. And they're great stories. My Bible reading plan, uh, I've just finished the book of Judges, and those fantastic stories. I love uh, the Old Testament and their stories. But when it comes to Gideon, there's a wonderful passage in Judges 8. Um, so Gideon, effectively, great story of Gideon. Uh, he delivered the, the nation from the Midianites. And then it says... Um, Oh, so with the judges, they only ever ruled over local tribes, not the whole nation. So a judge was raised up for a tribe to deliver, and they got the whole nation. So in Judges 8.22, the Israelites came to Gideon and said, We want you to be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon's response here shows us God's plan for rulership and leadership of his people. But it also shows us that God's plan that he would rule, that he would reign, but man's plan would be that man would reign, that they could appoint, they could find someone to rule them. Now if we fast forward a hundred years, still in the book of Judges, we come across Israel's last judge, his name was Samuel, and, uh, and he... Uh, delivered them, his sons took over his leadership role, but his sons weren't very good. And so, 100 years later, we come to our next passage, uh, in the next one. So the Israelites come again to Samuel, they said, look, they tell them, you're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us, just like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord and asked for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. For they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And so, so the nation of Israel are now asking us, give us a king. We want to be like everyone else around. We're not satisfied with God's rulership over us. We want to be like everyone else. Give us a king. And so Samuel explains what it looks like if you have a king. He, I'm not going to read the passage, but basically they'll, they'll take the best of your crops, of your, your herds, of your harvest, of your, of, of your workers. They'll take your sons and your daughters. They'll make them work in their fields. The king will give you taxes. Uh, and uh, this is the cost of kingship. There is a cost. And, and Samuel made it very clear. If you want a king, be mindful that he's going to want something from you and it's going to cost you and it's going to be 
uh, likely it's going to be painful or hurtful and expensive. In verse 28, but the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to live like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. So that's the, the beginning of man's heart and desire for a king. And so what follows, if, you, if you're reading from the story in the Old Testament, we come to the story of the appointment of Israel's first king. His name was Saul. And again, these are amazing stories. If you go in the scripture, you can learn so much about the nature of God and the ways of God through this. Um, and so Saul was requested by man, but he was chosen by God. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see that Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I'm doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. Here we see, like you would have seen on the uh, coronation last night, that oil was used to um, anoint the king. And so this is likely the first time we see recorded in the scripture of this institution of coronation that's obviously now very different to what it was back then. Uh, it was quite a simple affair. Uh, it wasn't a lot of pomp and a lot of ceremony. It was a simply God-choosing man and man choosing to follow God. That's where kingship started. And I don't think it should ever change from that. Now, a little bit later um, uh, in, in Samuel's story, so we've got the anointing that happens. And then in verse 24, then Samuel said to all the people, this is the man that has chosen you as king, and no one in all Israel is like him. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Does this sound familiar to those who watched the coronation last night? Long live the king. Uh, then Samuel told the people what the rights and the duties of the king were as protector and, and provider. He goes through explaining what the role of the king is. And he wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord. So this is the, the first coronation we come across in Israel. Uh, and then Saul started off really strong. He was a great military leader. He had some great victories. But then uh, he started to be more interested in the opinion of people than in the opinion of God. And so God would, would turn his attention and reject Saul as leader. And he would choose someone else. His name is David. Uh, many of you would know his story. Uh, he was a shepherd boy who became king. In fact, he would be known as Israel's greatest king. And so let's fast forward the story a little bit to David. And if you know the, the story, Samuel goes to Jesse's house looking for the king. And Jesse brings all his seven sons before him and said, Surely this guy must be the king. Look at him. He's strong and tall and regal. And so one by one, uh, Samuel brings his son before Samuel the prophet. Sorry, Jesse brings his sons before Samuel the prophet. And uh, God says, No, 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 no. And then all the sons are done, and, and Samuel says to Jesse, is this all you got? Yeah, well, I've got seven, you know. <laughs> I've actually got one more. Here's the young boy out in the fields. Samuel said, get him at once. And so, so they bring uh, David, young David, before Samuel. And in uh, two, 1 Samuel 16, we see that as David stood among his brothers, Samuel did what? He took the flask of olive oil that he had brought and anointed David with the oil. 
And I love this bit. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Something powerful about anointing. There's something powerful uh, about this. There's a symbolism attached to anointing. But certainly, even with Saul, there was a time when, when, he, was, when he was prophesying and he was just moving in a, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in a powerful way. So David was anointed to be king, um, but he wasn't crowned king. Anointed, but not crowned. And so that wouldn't happen for another 20 years. 20 years of waiting. 20 years of waiting for the promise of God to the outworking, to the provision of God. And we live in a world where everything's instant, don't we? We want everything quickly and instantly. And sometimes we can't wait a week, let alone 20 years, for God to bring about what he planned. But here we see that David, after 20 years later, between his anointing as king, being chosen as king and filled with God's spirit, we come to his coronation. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, so we find them at Hebron. At Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. In, in all. And so, so we're seeing the, the development of monarchy in Israel. Remember, the, the, the service that was done last night was based, as, as the Archbishop would say, it's deeply anchored in ancient Israel tradition and truth. So now we're seeing monarchy take a bit more shape and form. Uh, and so David's son Solomon after uh, uh, would be the next one to become king. And now this, and you're going to see, now that we come to Solomon, this, this, the coronation ceremonies are becoming a little bit more grand. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, um, so Zadok the priest, in fact one of the songs they sang last night was about Zadok the priest. We're going to sing that right now. And Steve's going to lead it. So, <laughs> uh, so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, uh, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the king's bodyguard took Solomon down to the Gohan spring, with Solomon riding on King David's own mule. Then Zadok the priest took the flask of olive oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon with the oil. Then they sounded the ram's horn and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, past Buckingham Palace, and the, uh, playing flutes and shouting for joy. The celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound. Can you see this, this idea of kingship was developing and morphing into something that was incredibly grand. And so, um, so now after Solomon, things went belly up. Everything went wrong for the nation of Israel. We had good kings, we had bad kings. <coughs> the good kings would lead the nations closer to God. The bad kings would lead them away and worshipping other gods. Ultimately, the succession of kingship in Israel, Israel became two, uh, two nations at the time. We had Judah in the north, Israel in the south, two sets of kings all duking it out. It was a mess. Ultimately, their succession of kingship abruptly ended when the nation was taken captive to, uh, to the great empires of the time, to, to the Assyrian Empire, the Syrian Empire, or the Babylonian Empire and the King Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, uh, Cyrus, the Persian Empire, that's the sequence of history. You'd see these world empires rise over time. Uh, and ultimately, we see it's under the Persian Empire, under King Darius, that the nation of Israel was released from captivity in Babylon and sent back uh, to Israel. Uh, 
But even in this time, we found that God was speaking. That, that God will use the prophets to speak of a coming king. A coming Messiah who would reign forever. The prophets were explaining and then telling the people that God would restore true kingship to Israel. Isaiah the prophet would write this. You'd be familiar with this one. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Now this is the, the prophetic word of looking to Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the coming King, the fulfillment of these prophecies. He is the ultimate king. He is the one that reigns over all creation. He is the one who established a kingdom that will never end. God's plan was always for his kingdom to be established on earth as it is in heaven. That was his plan in the beginning. And that's his the outworking. If you look at Revelation, that is the outworking of his plan. That the kingdoms of heaven have now become the kingdoms of earth. So we see God's plan was his kingdom to reign on earth. And, uh, and when the Jews were thinking of kingdom, when the Jews were thinking of a king, they were thinking of the kings that we think about, you know, the, 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 the kings on horses and, and the military leaders, the, bat, the battle commanders. Or they'd be thinking, for the Jews, when they were talking about kings, they were probably thinking, oh, the emperor. Because they're, they're king, they're, uh, the Caesars in Rome, they were the kings of, of, the, of the region, of the Roman Empire that was at work when Jesus was here. And they were thinking, when kingship was talked about, they were thinking of wealth. They were probably thinking of a little bit to some of what we saw last night of the pomp and the ceremony. But they saw kings also that would rule with absolute power. See, I think there's 26 monarchies left in our world today. Uh, of those 26, only seven of them have absolute power. The rest are constitutional monarchies. The rest are, are kings that have, or queens that have moved into largely figurehead roles or charity roles or social roles. Uh, they exist and they govern, but their powers are limited by their constitution. Australia, uh, we, we obviously own uh, King Charles in that space as a, as a constitutional king. Limited power, very limited power certainly in Australia. Even in England, very limited powers. Uh, in, in the world, seven though existed ultimate power where a king says something and it happens. No questions asked. And so, um, so when they thought king, that's the type of king they were thinking about. The one who has the final say, the one who has all authority, all power, you just do what the king says, otherwise it's off with your head. Um, but what we, got, what we discover, Jesus was a very different type of king. He was not someone who came to conquer the earth or to rule over a physical kingdom. He did not come to seek power or wealth, nor did Jesus demand obedience or respect from those around him. Instead, Jesus, we see, came to the earth to serve, to love, and ultimately to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. Jesus would say this, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you were not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules should be like the one who serves. So Jesus is saying, the world does kingship in this way. 
The world does kingship with pomp and ceremony and, 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 and receiving all you can get and tributes. And this is how the world does it. But not for you. True leadership comes from serving. In fact, if you look at, at the end of Jesus' ministry, <coughs> when he's standing before Pilate, uh, the Roman governor at the time, Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? That's the question that, that Pilate's asking, because that's what the Jewish leaders were, were claiming. Jesus is saying he is the king of the Jews. So Pilate says, Okay, what's the deal? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers and says, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus understood that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, we, we, we would see him show us what true kingship is. He had compassion on the hurting. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He comforted those that were afflicted. He lifted up the downtrodden. He, he protected those who were weak and vulnerable. He showed mercy to sinners. And he spoke truth to those in power. He taught his disciples how to love, to love their neighbours as themselves. And he put the needs of others before his own. Ultimately, the true king laid down his life for his kingdom and his people. See, Jesus was no ordinary king. He was an extraordinary king. In fact, Philippians puts it this way. And uh, I don't know, I was watching um, the exit of the, the king and queen uh, as they exited the abbey. And I, I was just watching some people would curtsy, some people would nod, some people would sort of bow their knee. And I was thinking, not everyone's doing that. I don't know if everyone else noticed that. I thought, okay, that's, not everyone else is doing that. So, you know, I just parked that thought. And then as, we, as I was thinking about kingship and, and what we saw last night and, and trying to imagine the scenes in heaven, I think it would be very different to what we saw. But let me tell you, Paul says this to the Philippians church regarding how Jesus, how, how he emptied himself of all his divinity and he laid aside everything to come to earth and, it said, and to die a, a criminal's death on a cross. That's the King Jesus. He says, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above every name, all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Every knee would bow. The time is coming where every, every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. Not, not those who wander, not those who are sort of just there doing their thing. In heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is King to the glory of God the Father. And so... You might be here today thinking, well, what, what, is that, what has kingship got to do with us in Newcastle today? Do we or should we care about the monarchy? This is, non, this is not a question on republicanism or monarchism. Okay. Certainly, what, but what is our response to what happened last night? Certainly, the Bible tells us we should pray for the king. Paul says Timothy, I urge you first of all to pray for all people. All people. That sort of covers everyone, like kings and others. But it's, it gets a bit more particular. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray in this way for kings and all who are in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. 
Well, here's something we can do. We can pray. And you've got to remember, when Paul was writing this letter, he was writing a letter to young Timothy. Young Timothy was based in Ephesus. He was pastor of church in Ephesus. And at that time, the reigning king was Nero. The, the, the Caesar, the emperor that, the, that, that, that led and had jurisdiction over Ephesus was Nero. And so, <coughs> pardon me. And so, for those who don't know Nero's story, he sort of began as an alright emperor, but in the end, he set Rome ablaze, set it on fire, and he blamed the Christians for that, and that began significant widespread persecution of Christianity in Rome. So, so Nero wasn't the greatest advocate for Christians, I would think. But so, so what Paul's saying there is, you know what? It doesn't matter what you think of the emperor. It doesn't matter what you think of the king. Whether he should or shouldn't, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter what your opinion is on the people who are in authority or leadership. They need your prayers. They need your prayers. Whether they, they even if you think of King Charles, whether you think... He has any influence or not, or any real power or not. That, that's not the point here. The point is, we are called to pray for him. Why? Because he still has influence. Whether it's limited, whether it's absolute, or whether it's maybe a figurehead, a nobleman, someone who a nation can look to. I don't know, I'm not here to comment on those things. I'm saying, whatever your view of monarchy or kingship is, or leadership is, we're called to pray. So we're going to do that. We're going to take a few moments now and pray, because we're asked to. We're instructed to. So, Father God, this morning we, we come before you as the High King of Heaven. And Lord, we, we acknowledge, Lord, that, that you are ultimate and Jesus, we thank you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and Lord, we do pray for uh, King Charles. Lord, we pray that in his time of leadership and his position, that he would continue to find himself bowing his knee to Jesus. And Lord, in whatever opportunity he has to influence and shape his country and his world, Lord, I pray that he would do it with grace. He would represent you. He would represent your grace and your mercy and your compassion, Lord. I don't know how that will look, but Lord, we just pray. We pray that you would bless him. We pray that you would uh, help him to, to govern in his capacity and to lead in whatever he can in a way that brings honour to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Now, I'm just about done. So at, toward the end of the uh, coronation service, um, it was a time where people were pledging allegiance to the king. And so uh, the archbishop would come and kneel down at the, uh, at the King Charles and he would pledge his allegiance to the king. Then uh, the Prince of Wales, uh, Prince William, would come and kneel down and pledge his allegiance to the king. And then the, uh, the archbishop would, would ask everyone across, well, certainly those that were there, uh, even though I remember an interview with prior Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, uh, he indicated that he would swear allegiance to the king. And so, so it was asked of all those that were there to, to read through the little script of swearing allegiance to the new king. 
um, and then to sort of and or everyone else to do it internally. Um, and so I don't know if some of them had their fingers crossed when they did it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's in their hearts. I don't know if they meant what they said. I don't know if they believed any of the stuff from, from the biblical foundation or the anointing or, or I don't know I don't know any of their hearts or their or their situations when it came to pledging their allegiance to the king. But as Christians that we know that Jesus is not just our saviour, he's our king. And so what does it mean for us to pledge allegiance to our king? What does it mean to have Jesus as our personal king? See, living under the kingship of Jesus, it should compel us to live different lives. We are also called to love our neighbours as ourselves. We are called to seek justice, show compassion, extend grace to others. This often means humbling ourselves and serving others. Ultimately, just as our King Jesus modelled and showed that he poured himself out for the sake of others. Could that what allegiance to our King means? Could it mean that we, we acknowledge him? It's not a matter of, well, Jesus is my king with my you're my king, Jesus, but I'm gonna do whatever I want. I'm gonna I'm gonna live my own life. I'm gonna you know, you're, you're, of course you're my king, I'm, I'm gonna surrender to you, but my fingers are crossed. Is, is that how we view our kingship to Jesus so we can say, You are my king? We've sung the songs, <coughs> we acknowledge your power. In fact, have a look through Revelation, Revelation 19, we, we actually see Jesus enthroned, riding a horse. We see the powerful king of Jesus. We, we see, I mean, he, had, he had a tattoo, um, uh, just saying. Um, uh, king of kings and lord of lords written on his leg. This is, this is King Jesus, not just a meek and mild. Jesus is actually a victorious, powerful king. And Revelation gives us a good glimpse of that. But what's our response to him right now? It's got to be gratitude. And as I watched King Charles walk down the aisle and, and I saw the people sort of there, nodding their heads, I'm thinking, what's our response going to be when we see Jesus? Well, what's our response to you, Jesus, for all you've done for me? I'm so grateful. And I'm going to, I want to do my best to, to honour you, to live a life that reflects your values and your kingdom, to extend your grace and compassion to others that are in desperate need. That we could, and, you know, and the thing is, we can't do that by ourselves. And this, I'll get a worship team up, thanks. We can't do this by ourselves. I mean, we can try all we like to, to live a good life or try to please Jesus or, or to, uh, to, to, to surrender to him, but we can't do it by ourselves. <coughs> it's not going to be achieved in our strength and ability, but it's through his spirit at work in us. And if you remember when, when David was anointed king, the the Spirit came upon him. The Holy Spirit came upon him. You know, and we as Christians, we, we don't need to... In fact, the story of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit coming upon kings and leaders for times and seasons, and, and that's it, empowered for a moment. But when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, which is three weeks away, um, he came to rest and to stay into and dwell in us. We've got the Spirit of the living God in us. We've got the, the Holy Spirit in us that can help us to live the life that honours Jesus. That helps us to, to re re reflect and represent Him wherever we go into a world that is desperate. Desperate need of His love. 
more and more people I talk to, usually for side of soccer fields, people play soccer as well, her team lost, just in case you're wondering. Um, how the girls go yesterday? True. So cool. I think you love it how I just changed topic. It's sort of like at a really, really important bit, and Mark's got a really, really... Anyway. What's that talking about? <laughs> what I was talking about was the people I was standing next to in the soccer field, and I talk about the world we live in, and I talk about the uncertainty, and the, and the, and the fear, and the, whether it's economics, or politics, or war, or economy, or interest rates, or social action, and social justice, and climate, or, or, or masses of people that can't produce food. <laughs> We're in a season or a world that is add to that our own challenges of inflation and cost of living and we're living in a world that is in desperate need of hope. A world that's in desperate need of peace. A world that's in desperate need to actually experience the kingship of Jesus, the provision of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. Not, not, not the pomp and the ceremony. That's, you can take that or leave that. But our world needs Jesus. And last verse up here. Revelation tells us that he, this Jesus, has made you and me a king and a priest. You see, we've got a role to play. We've got a role to play as our world heads toward uncertain times. We have a role of kingship. What type of kingship? One, one that's modelled on Jesus. To love, to accept, to forgive, to sacrifice. That's our response. That's our response to kingship. That's our response to King Jesus. So I'd like us to all stand together, please. We're going to uh, just take a moment and just sing. And as we do, it's a beautiful song that we just, as you know, learned this morning. But as we do, let's... One of the things I noticed in the ceremony, the English people, they don't say hallelujah, do they, Pat? Why don't you say hallelujah? Why don't they say hallelujah? Because, anyway, they said that a lot. Hallelujah, hallelujah. But this morning, for a moment, we want to think about King Jesus. Think about all he's done for us. Think about his spirit that lives in us, that can enable us and empower us to be the people that, that you that to change the worlds we live in. Think of him and let's spend a moment just 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 praising him and lifting our voice to honor our king, our true king this morning. And then once the song's done I'll come up and I'll pray and then